At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, All Things New, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. Well, I think we have a problem with talking about evil in our day and in our times. Our problem with talking about evil is that we have become, what I'll say, intellectually lazy about it. We've really become sedated by the relative affluence and wealth and peace that we have in our nice, comfortable, suburban culture. We, we want to believe that, that it's actually intolerant or it lacks mercy and kindness if anyone is punished or faces eternal judgment for their evil and their sin. The, the way this is brought up is as a critique against Christianity And it happens today through the statement, if God was a loving God, how could he send people to hell forever? Now, that's that's really one that we would just, oh, I don't know. But, But how would you answer that question if you were talking to someone who had faced massive evil and suffering in their own life? I mean, what, what would you say to the person who is a refugee from Afghanistan, who had lost everything, seen their entire family assaulted, murdered, their mothers and sisters raped, and all their earthly possessions burned by a tyrannical regime bent on destroying them? Or, or what would you say to the survivor of the concentration camps during the Holocaust, who saw their entire family gassed to death because of their ethnic heritage? What about one of the more than 250 young women who were part of the U.S. Olympic gymnastic program that were sexually assaulted by Larry Nassar? Or what do you say to one of the parents of a high school student at Oxford High or an elementary student at Covenant School in Nashville who lost their children to senseless mass shootings? These examples, by right, are crying out for justice. Every one of them would say, we want justice because of the heinous nature of the evil committed against them. So would you just tell them that their oppressors are going to get away with it because God loves and forgives everybody? There is no consequences. There is no eternal hell for their evil. That's why I say we have a problem with talking about evil today in our comfortable, no-big-issues culture. Nothing really seems to demand justice. And yet we all know that without justice, things are not right. Furthermore, if we're honest with ourselves, when we're wronged, when somebody sins against us, the very first thing that we want is justice. And we want the people that have sinned against us, the people that have wronged us, we want them to face justice. We want them to suffer in the way that they've made us suffer. Maybe even we want them to suffer just a little bit worse. That would seem right to us. The Christians of the first centuries were asking these troubling questions of their own time as they interacted with the oppressive Roman Empire as well. The Roman emperors had become cruel, violently oppressing Christians. Domitian, the likely Roman emperor, when uh, this 
book, Revelation, was written, he had proclaimed himself Lord and God and demanded that the entire empire worship him as a deity. Anyone who wouldn't bow the knee, anyone who wouldn't proclaim Caesar is Lord, would be in trouble with the government and would face persecution and death themselves. So what would you say to a Christian community that has experienced death, that has experienced persecution, that's experienced even martyrdom for their faith when they won't bow the knee to Caesar? How will they view that evil done against them? The Christian church, too, demanded and desired justice and needed hope. That's one of the great purposes of the book of Revelation as a whole. The letter of Revelation, the letters that are here, are visions given from Christ to the Apostle John, and they serve the purpose of waking up the church from her complacency, but also encouraging the church in the midst of a hostile Roman Empire that they can have confidence that Jesus will come again and that his ultimate triumph will happen. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as much as this book propels us to the future... As we await the second coming of Christ, the book of Revelation deals with the present and and really the first century readers, their present moment, as well as instructing them and us about our lives today. We've begun this new series called All Things New last week as we look forward to the second coming of Christ when he will make all things new. But it also speaks to how we will live today. What, what What does Christ's coming, his His second return, what does that have to say about how we live in the midst of a hostile culture, in the midst of a world that is breaking apart, where great acts of evil and violence and atrocities are done? How will we live in the midst, faithfully, of that kind of world? Well, The book of Revelation helps us see a conquering king who is coming and live in the midst of a hostile culture with hope in God's goodness and justice. Now, as we start this series, last week we began, Pastor Chris led us off in Revelation 19. Uh, We're going to be in verses 11 through 21. As we begin this series, I want to just point us to a couple references and resources to help you study the book of Revelation. I wish we could have gone through the entire uh, letter as a whole. It's amazing. Uh, There's a lot of uh, conversation about how to interpret Revelation. You've got to understand that there is a lot of metaphor here. Much of Revelation itself refers back to Old Testament scriptures, and so as someone has put, like, the book of Revelation is one of the most hyperlinked letters and references in all the world. Uh, Two resources I found particularly helpful, um, one in the Tyndale New Testament commentary series uh, by Ian Paul. His study on the book of Revelation is exceptional. I would encourage you to pick that up and use that as a resource as you read and study this book as a whole yourself. Uh, The other one is uh, Dennis Johnson's book, The Triumph of the Lamb. Um, and again, another commentary on Revelation, uh, but both are very, very helpful. I've used this as I've been studying along, and so I would encourage you to pick them up as well. But I want to take us here into this text and just deal with this issue about God's goodness and his justice by seeing the amazing vision of Jesus at his return. And the truth to put for, before you this morning is this, Jesus will defeat God's enemies, This passage just shows us really clearly, if you could say this whole passage in one sentence, it's that Jesus wins. Jesus defeats all of God's enemies. There's not one standing at the end of this passage against God, against Christ. And that might be a little hard for us to take because we think, oh, God wins, like he he levels everybody. We want Jesus to be some sort of kind of 
soft, comfortable, you know, just adequate Jesus for us. He doesn't take issue with anybody. Won't, he won't offend you. He just drinks tea and makes you feel happy about yourself, and he won't say anything hard. But friends, that is a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. You can't have a God who is truly just if we don't have a God who truly deals with sin. We can't have a God who is truly good if we don't have a God who doesn't deal ultimately with evil. And this passage here, it is not going to tell us to do anything. There's no three steps to a better day with God here in this passage. All these passages do is tell us to look. It's forming for us a theology, a view of God and who he is, that if we will look and see, we will see a God, our faith will be built in a God that is both totally good and totally just at the same time. So I want us to see what John sees this morning and to capture, as best as I can articulate it as this passage lays out, a vision of Christ and his coming again. We're going to see two things. First of all, I want us to see the victorious king. Let's just get it in our mind and in our heart. Jesus, as he, as he reveals himself for us, what is he like? What is he coming to do again? Who, who is he? John says in verse 11, I saw heaven opened. So this sets up a new section of the book of Revelation. And this section is marked by this phrase, I saw. Through this section, there are seven I saw statements that, that all lead up to the return of Christ, that, that pinnacle moment. The commentary I mentioned by Ian Paul, in it he describes these last visions in chapter 19 through 22. He describes them this way. The seven visions here offer seven perspectives on what the future of God's relationship with the world, as expressed in the return of Jesus, means for humanity and the people of God. Here at last is revealed in these different visions what it means for God to be the one who is, who was, and who is to come future. So what does John see in this vision? First of all, he says, I saw heaven open, and look, behold, a white horse. Okay, that was not maybe what you were expecting at this moment. Uh, if you've seen our series graphics, there's that white horse there. What is this talking about? Well, a white horse is a symbol of power and authority. Kings rode these white horses. The horses were seen, the, the ones that were white were seen with uh, being the best of horses, the most pure, the strongest. They had dominion. They were used specifically for rulers and kings. Unlike Jesus' triumphal entry in his ministry when he came into Jerusalem on, on a donkey, on a colt, here he comes in on a powerful white horse displaying himself as ruler and king with all authority. And we shouldn't just focus on the horse here. John keeps looking and he keeps talking for us about what he sees. And he says, I saw the one sitting on it. And make no mistake, this is Jesus Christ himself. The one sitting on it is called faithful in, and true. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. Here's, here's this one, faithful and true. That's his, that's his name. The very description of his character is there. He is full of integrity, truth, loyalty, honor. There is no deficiency in Christ. There is no inadequacy in him. There is no variation or lie or lack of truth. He is faithful and true in every way. And flowing from his title of faithfulness and truth, we see the manner in which he rules and reigns. It says, in righteousness. 
And if you just need to underline that, go for it there. This is how he executes his office as king. This is how he rules and reigns, in righteousness or in justice. He, he never does anything wrong, never makes a bad decision, never gets out of his lane. He executes the righteousness of God fully and perfectly. And so in righteousness, he judges, he decides, and he makes war. He brings reconciliation and recompense against the wrongdoer. His judgments are just. He opposes the wrongdoer, bringing his enemies under his feet in all righteousness and purity. Here we, we, we have one who is not a short-fused, easily offended, selfish, and petty ruler. We don't have a Roman tyrant here. We don't have one who's offended when someone speaks against him, but he is perfectly glorious in every way. He just doesn't fly off the cuff. He executes righteousness in every way. He's a king who is perfect and holy in every decision and in every work to bring about justice and to conquer all of those who oppose him and do evil. And he's coming with power. He's coming with power. Verse 12 speaks of his penetrating vision, his purity of vision. He sees things rightly. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And he is crowned with authority and power with many diadems upon his head. In the Roman culture, you often think of the athlete who wins. They run the race and they win the victory and they get a wreath placed on their head. The wreath was a symbol of victory, but a crown, a diadem, was a symbol of power and authority. He's got the crown stacked on his head to display ultimate authority, ultimate power, penetrating insight, ultimate authority, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. We could suggest with that, that that this is a display of his infinite majesty, his unfathomable glory, the way we can never fully exhaust who he is. However, I think this reflects more on the way the ancient world viewed spiritual authorities and power. If, if you knew the name of a spiritual being, you had power over it. So if you remember back in Mark chapter 5, Jesus meets a demon-possessed man and he asks the man, he asks the demons, really, what's your name? And they say, Legion. And then he casts them out. He has power over them. Here Jesus has a name that no one knows. That is to say, no one holds authority over him. Yes, he is described as the one who is faithful and true. That is his name. He is described here in this passage as the word of God. That is his name. He is given the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is known, but he is mastered by no one. Ultimate authority, ultimate power, king over all kings. Verse 13 displays how he's clothed. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now this is a reference to the Old Testament scripture of Isaiah chapter 63. Here again, the the links between Revelation and the Old Testament are profound. It goes back to the scripture. There's this interaction between God and the prophet. And so the prophet asks, who is this who comes from Eden in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of of his strength. So here we see the question, who is this one who is coming with power and authority And the answer is from God. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. The Savior is here. The conqueror is here. And the question goes back. Well, why is your apparel red? Why are your garments like the one who treads the winepress? And the answer in Isaiah 63, 
I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Here we're meant to see in Isaiah 63 and in Revelation 19, God coming to make war, coming in justice, coming to avenge the wrong done against him and his people. His name, the word of God. The revelation of Almighty God. The explanation of who God the Father is. Christ coming with power and authority. Ready to bring justice. To make things right. The truth of God. The word of God. And he's not alone either. We see in verse 14. The armies of heaven coming with him. They are clothed as well. Arrayed in fine linen. White and pure. And following him on white horses. These are the saints, the people of God, the great multitude of saints from every nation and every language and every tongue coming with Christ, coming to rule and reign underneath him and with him, his people with him. But don't get fixed on them. Keep looking at Jesus. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Again, the sharp sword in Revelation speaks of his word. His word is the sword of the spirit. It cuts and divides us right to the core. His word speaks truth. His word carries the power of authority, God's authority. And so it is with his authority, with his word, that he strikes down the nations. He brings judgment and he rules over them with a rod of iron. Now again, this is an allusion back to the scriptures of the Old Testament, particularly Psalm 2 here. The nations and the rulers in Psalm 2 are are raising their fist at God. They're plotting to overthrow God and his, his king, the anointed one. So the psalmist asks, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And there's God. And the psalmist says that God looks over them and he laughs. He scoffs, you can't you can't overthrow me, God says. No, instead he sets his son, the king, Christ, on the throne and describes him as one who will rule with a rod of iron. That is that Christ will not be defeated. He will not be thwarted. No nation, no ruler, no scheme, no plan, no power structure, no system, no conspiracy will conquer Christ. We go back to Isaiah 63 with the next line. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. We see Christ coming back with justice ready to to bring and execute the justice of God, treading out the wine, as it were, on a wine press, bringing God's wrath to bear on sinners and evildoers. Because Jesus is God. He exercises the justice of God. He shares the attributes of God's justice. And out of all of this, verse 16, we we see where Christ stands, who he is. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. This is who he is, King of kings and Lord of lords. The supreme one, the ruler over all things. Christ alone, Jesus alone possesses that name and that right. Others have tried to take it for themselves, but they have all and will fail. Only Jesus is king over all kings. Only Jesus is the Lord over all lords. Only he is worthy of worship and glory and our homage and reference to him. 
He has given the name that is above all names. So where Caesar or a president or a religious leader might say, I am God, I am king, worship me, he levels them all and says, no, I am king of kings. I am Lord of lords. So that, Philippians 2 says, at the name of Jesus, the day is coming when every knee shall bow. Get the universality of that. Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In the totality of the universe, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's why we see Jesus this way. It's for us to get into our hearts and minds. You and I are not the king, but Christ is the king. You and I are not the rulers of our own little lives. We are not the rulers of this universe. Christ is the ruler. And he will come and he will make all things right against all the powers, all the authorities, all the kings and systems that rage and rebel against Christ. He alone is the conquering king. He is the warrior who comes to rule and to reign and to make all things right. Jesus will come again and he will bring justice. He will subject all his enemies under his authority. Righteousness, justice will proceed from him. Are you ready for him? Christ is coming and he will deal with every traitor, every usurper, Every tyrant, every oppressor, every violent and raging abuser, he is king of kings and lord of lords. Are you ready for him? Because every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. The question is, have you bowed your knee to Christ? Have you humbled yourself to him? He is coming King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then the scripture takes us to the next vision. What do, we, what do we see next? So we see the victorious king, but then we also see a victorious battle. What is this king coming with power and authority and glory and justice? What will he do? He will go to war. Now that might make you feel a little uncomfortable. This is like MMA Jesus. He is coming to make war, coming to make things right. And why is that the case? Because there is such great evil in the world. He's going to deal with it. And you you might have categorized that out of your mind. You might have compartmentalized great evil. You You might not even be aware that it exists because you don't care or it's not your experience in life anymore. But Jesus is coming to answer that evil. And he's coming to answer and make war against even the evil of our hearts as well. So we must see, secondly, Jesus coming in battle, the victorious battle. This is the next vision. Verse 17 and 18, they're an invitation, an invitation from heaven, not for us, but for, as it describes, the birds that fly directly overhead, the birds of the air. John says, I saw an angel standing in the sun. So this this angel with radiant light from behind him, just Uh, stunning in glory. And with a loud voice, this angel called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. And here's what the invitation is. Come, gather for the great supper of God. Like This angel just proclaims to all these birds out there, come, have a dinner, have a feast. It's going to be incredible. But it's, it's a grotesque feast. It's a gruesome invitation. Come to eat 
The flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, free and slave, both small and great. I mean, this is, this is a gruesome invitation. But again, John is hyperlinking with the Old Testament here. So this, this is not scripture that's unheard of. Ezekiel 39 is where John is referencing here. In this passage, God is expressing a great battle will take place. And a great slaughter will occur as God comes in righteousness and victory and glory. And he comes and he deals with his enemies and rescues his people. So here again we see God saying, I'm coming again to deal with my enemies and to rescue my people. The the invitation, it should stagger us. God is coming to make war. And, and we see this invitation giving way to a massive army, verse 19. So this is the third vision here in this section. John says, I saw, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And since we haven't walked through the entire book of Revelation, I, I have to just quickly supply some answers for us about some of these pictures or these metaphors. Revelation as a book is full of metaphor and imagery. And here in this one, in verses 19 and 20, we have three particularly big ones. We have the beast, the false prophet, and the mark of the beast, or the image there. Let me just give you kind of the shortcut answers on these, and then I'll entrust you to go and do some study on your own there. The language of the beast here goes back to chapter 13, in which I believe John is describing the imperial power of Rome and the imperial power of any human empire that claims only what God can claim. He uses this metaphor of the beast. So you have these imperial power centers, capitals, much like the emperors of Rome and John's day here claiming deity and power and kings of the earth latching onto this power. They're all opposed to and ready to make war against Christ. So you have the systems of this world, the political systems of this world opposed to God. And then you have the false prophet. That's the second metaphor image here. And this is the religious cult of the Roman Empire that took emperor worship and fused it with power and politics. It's where religion and church meet, religion and state meet in the wrong way and it all goes awry. This was found in Roman cities where they would try and earn the right to build a religious temple to the emperor and worship him as if he was a god. These cities wanted to be known as temple wardens and several of the cities that you find in Revelation 2 and 3, uh, the seven letters to the seven churches, they, were, they actually had that title, temple wardens. Their social and economic prestige was heightened by being that. If you worship the emperor here in the city, you were making more money. You were doing better. And they would have these festivals and these cultic practices around the worship of the emperor and the gods that was ugly and reprehensible. So you have the beast representing political power, the false prophet representing religious power that's, that's disgusting, and then you have this third metaphor here, the mark of the beast. Now let me just tell you, this is not a computer chip in your head or your hand. It's not a barcode or a tattoo or a credit card or AI or even a vaccine. Again, metaphor, that's what John is using here in Revelation. In Revelation, everyone has a mark. Everyone has a mark or a seal. The mark or the seal was a depiction of who you follow. So either you followed Christ and were sealed or marked by him, or you followed the devil and the systems and powers of this world and you were marked for him or by him. 
The question of the mark of the beast is, it, is really, who has your loyalty? Who has your loyalty? Who do you worship and serve? So, so let's go back to Revelation 19.20 here and get the sense of it. The beast was captured. So we've got a battle. The beast and the kings of the earth, they're arrayed against Christ. They're ready to make war against him. You see the, 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 the system, the, the, the movement, the offensive that the world systems are taking. They are ready to fight Christ. And what happens? Here's what the battle happens. It's over. They're ready to make war, and then, verse 20, the beast was captured. End of game. Like, we don't even hear about the fight. There is, it's just done. Jesus comes back, and he and his power ends it. The beast was captured. The false prophet, who in his presence had done signs, and deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and worshipped that image. The battle's over. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. That is to say, Christ comes and he conquers. The war doesn't even happen. It's over. And those two, they're thrown in the lake of fire. Hell is their place. Justice is served against anyone who would oppose Christ, anyone who would, who would seek to rage against Jesus. You don't have a chance. Any system or power or religious cult or scheme, it's done with right away. And the rest, verse 21, all those who, who follow those systems, who live in those operations, who, who follow the ways of the devil and his kingdom, they're done too. The rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Second Thessalonians says that Christ will come and with his breath he will end it all. With his word will be done. There is no fight. Christ wins. The battle is over. Justice is served. Now don't get lost in all the particulars here. Except to see that there's a great battle and it's no battle at all. Christ comes and he has de decisive victory. Jesus will defeat all of God's enemies. Now, this is a powerful passage because it presents to us a future of what Christ will do. It, it lines us up. If this is true, then you and I have to reconcile our lives around it. We, we've got to figure out how we're going to live in light of this being what it is. And the question here is, what does this have to do with justice? Think about the people that have been victimized by power structures, both the religious and political entities of our time. They cry out for justice. They wonder, will justice come for them? They ask, am I just a fodder under the feet of another tyrant who's trying to take supreme power and glory for themselves? When we are sinned against, we ask the question, is God good and is God just? And a passage like this tells us, yes, God is full of mercy and love and full of righteousness and justice. And he is never divided in his mercy and justice. Consider it this way. In each coming of Jesus Christ, both his first coming and in his second coming, both his full love and his full justice are displayed. At Christ's first coming, God displayed his love for us, as Scripture says, in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the justice of God was served as well. God pointed his wrath at the Son who died as a substitute in our place. 
Justice was served on the cross as Jesus paid for the sins of his people and died on our behalf. Friend, if you are in Christ, you will not face the justice of God that Revelation 19 describes. Justice has been served. Christ died for you. You get to receive and embrace and enjoy his love and mercy, and that's your story. But this day is coming, this time is coming, when Christ will come again. And all those who are enemies of Christ, all those who have not bowed the knee, proclaim Jesus as Lord and King over their life, all those who follow the kingdoms and powers and things of this world will be conquered by the justice of Christ and Jesus' love will be experienced in redeeming and making all things new his people. All the wrongs will be made right. Evil will be undone because God is the judge. So that reality begs the question then, where will God's justice that your sin demands be resolved? Now, you might not think of yourself as a wicked person on the level of an Adolf Hitler. You might not believe that your white collar, white lie, sin, I'm not harming anybody, is worth eternal judgment in hell. You might think that it's unfair that God would forever punish people that don't believe and follow him. But if you do believe those things, you're missing out on how radically hostile your sin is. You're failing to see how utterly violent your rebellion against God and his ways are. You might think, it's only a small thing, but let me put it to you this way. An, in, uh, an, uh, an offense against an infinite being, who God is, is an infinite offense, and that demands an infinite punishment. If you believe that your sin is just a mistake, or it's nothing too bad, you will find, and you have no need for repentance, no need for humbling yourself to God, you will find that God will bring down his justice upon you through Christ's return on that future day. The day of the Lord will be a terrible day for those who are not in Christ. Jesus will have his victory. But if today you see your rebellion and you see your sin and you see your rejection of him and you need help and resolution today, today is a day of salvation. Look to Jesus and repent. Offer your heart to him and seek him for forgiveness and healing because that's how he is coming for you right now. Look at Jesus and trust him. Trust his work that he died on the cross for you and that's where God's justice was served. For all the sin that you did, Christ paid for it in every way. Repent and believe. Be loyal to Jesus and forgiveness and mercy, they're yours in full. Today is the day to come to Jesus and to bow your knee as he patiently extends his grace and forgiveness. You can bow your knee to Christ today in humility and know his love and forgiveness. Or you could be stiff-necked and hard-hearted and one day Jesus will make you bow the knee to him. Don't wait until that day when he comes and brings full justice on all those who will not bow the knee. Because every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. Justice will be served. Mercy given. Redemption and all things will be made new. Do you see Jesus coming? Do you see him as the glorious victor? The conquering king? 
his battle completed and won, making all things right. He will have his day. So where will you stand on that day? Let's pray. Father, this day of Christ's coming for us, just to read it here and to see it, it, it can overwhelm us, and it should. On one hand, Lord, we are comforted by it because we know that all things will be made right. And yet, Lord, we're, we're prompted to fear you because we don't want to be on, we don't want to be on the recipient side of your vengeance and justice. So, Lord, I pray that your spirit would humble our hearts, that we would bow the knee to Christ, that we would receive with humility what he has done for us on the cross, and that we would no longer be enemies, no longer be opposed, but that we would be your children, that we would come seeking your grace. And your word promises us that anyone who comes to Christ, anyone who turns to him will not be put away will be adopted as your children. So Lord, may that be true here. I pray that there would not be a person who has heard my voice this morning, who has heard your word this morning, whose hearts would be hardened, but that they would be humbled and softened, that Christ would be our Lord and our King. We thank you for your word and how it readies us for that day. Even so, come Lord Jesus, we pray. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.